So now it's Dr. Seuss. They're banning him in school boards. Amazon won't sell his books. They don't like a few things that he wrote early on in his career. Are we going to be told what to read? Are we going to be told how to educate our children? If Dr. Seuss can be banned, who's next? You'll hear about the implications of a banning culture and cancel culture on The Der Show. When I published my first um, major book, The Best Defense, I went to the publisher's office at Random House, and as I was waiting to meet the publisher, a guy walked in and introduced himself to me uh, as a, a man named Mr. Geisel. I didn't recognize him right away, but when the publisher uh, came out, he said, Alan, meet Dr. Seuss. And there was Dr. Seuss, the hat and the cat, sitting right next to me. We had the same publisher. And we got to talk and schmooze, and I talked to him about how I had brought my kids up uh, on his books. And it was really uh, quite a remarkable uh, and memorable meeting. Uh, Imagine how surprised I was uh, today to read that Dr. Seuss has now been canceled and banned, and a number of publishers are refusing to publish his books, and a number of school districts are refusing to allow uh, kids to read his books. Apparently, he was a person of his times. And back in the, I don't know, 40s, 50s, and 60s, he used some uh, images that today are uh, deemed to be unacceptable. So uh, he joins a whole list of icons. Kate Smith, whose rendition of God Bless America, I love. Uh, and always, uh, when I went to Yankee games uh, in Yankee Stadium, they would always play her rendition, uh, in, I think, in the seventh inning. Now that's been banned. Uh, she's been taken down from in front of the Philadelphia Flyers arena um, because, as a young person, she sang a couple of songs that today are deemed to be politically incorrect. So... We're moving toward a, a world in which we, the readers, uh, we, the listeners, we, the viewers, are being denied access. Our children are being denied access to books that we grew up with, that we loved. Um, it doesn't stop with Dr. Seuss. It includes Mark Twain's books, Huckleberry Finn, Tom Sawyer. Um, it includes uh, many other books. And, and, and one of the important points is what it does not include. Uh, Amazon, for example, is, is not going to sell uh, Dr. Seuss, but continues to sell Hitler's Mein Kampf and, and some of the worst, worst books uh, ever written. Uh, what what are, are the standards? Where does it stop? Uh, again, it's much like a social media there are really only two alternative ways uh, for publishers, social media, Amazon, others to 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 regulate what people see here and and read. Either they have to accept the taxi cab theory, basically, look, we're just taxi cabs. You hail us, we'll take you wherever you want to go as long as you have the fare. Um, we don't make distinctions based on where you're going, what you look like, who you are, what your intentions are. Um, uh, or uh, a censorship approach where we decide what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. There's no middle ground. You can't refuse to publish Dr. Seuss and publish Adolf Hitler. There's just no justification for that, because when you refuse to publish Dr. Seuss, you're basically saying you have standards, 
And if Hitler meets those standards, if other horrible mass murderers uh, meet those standards, uh, how can you apply those standards to others who don't even come close? I mean, just think about who would be Im- implicated in uh, a Dr. Seuss-type standard. Already we've seen uh, J.K. Rawlings, uh, Harry Potter. Um, her work has been taken off shelves, and she's been canceled because of some controversial remarks she made about transgender uh, issues and, and other issues. Um, how about uh, Roald Dahl? Roald Dahl was a flaming anti-Semite, a bigot of the worst kind, racist, everything. It doesn't appear in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. You wouldn't know it, but you go back and you read some of the things he said about Jews. It's just unbelievable. It doesn't stop there. Uh, T.S. Eliot, um, a friend of mine, uh, wrote an essay uh, on T.S. Eliot and his hatred uh, of Jews. Dostoevsky. I used to assign my students in, in the class I taught on where does your morality come from, um, I used to have one session on, at least one session, on imperfect heroes. And, you know, I'd go over Jefferson and his uh, ownership of slaves and his sale of slaves. He was worse. He used to chase down slaves and pay people to bring them back. This is the man who wrote, you know, all men are created equal, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Yet when one of his slaves tried to pursue happiness and freedom, he hunted them down and punished them and helped write the black codes, the slave codes of um, of Virginia, which imposed horrible punishments on unescaped slaves or anybody who helped them uh, escape. So I would always have a class on imperfect uh, heroes. And the biggest surprise was when I assigned the students Dostoevsky's, who's a great hero and one of the authors who I love the most, Crime and Punishment, Brothers Karamazov, are books I go back to all the time and learn from. Um, Dostoevsky has an essay on the Jews, which would have made Hitler proud. He talked about, you know, the Jews being greedy and hoarding money and wanting to take all the gold out of country. I mean, it was just right out of the protocols of the elders of Zion. Horrible, horrible stuff from the pen of the great Dostoevsky. Uh, Are we going to start canceling and banning Books by great people. Renoir was a horrible, horrible sexist, as was Picasso. Uh, Many, many of the great painters of of France sided with the French government in the Dreyfus case and wanted to see a perfectly innocent man who was framed uh, spend the rest of his life on, on Devil's Island. How far back in history do we go? Do we just ban the actual books Uh, If Dr. Seuss that may have had images that we find unacceptable today, do we cancel him completely? Do we give a pass to Roald Dahl because his books don't contain the images that he believed in? Um, If Adolf Hitler had written a children's book, which was perfectly reasonable children's book about blonde-eyed, blue-haired people who like dogs, uh, would we allow that to be published and, and and circulated his paintings, Adolf Hitler's paintings today. You can buy them uh, at auction or online, and they go for much more than they're actually worth because of who painted them. Where do we stop? Why have we begun? Where is this leading to? You know, it starts with politics. 
Um, we ban people who we don't like politically. But, you know, it was the great uh, philosopher and, and literary figure Heinrich Heine, who in 19th century Germany said those who begin by burning books eventually end up by burning people. Boy, was he prescient. In Nazi Germany in the 1930s, young students, students, great students, philosophy students <clears throat> at the University of Berlin and other great universities had bonfires <clears throat> in front of their dorms and in front of their lecture halls in which they burned the works of Sigmund Freud and burned the works. And by the way, some feminists today would join them in burning the works of Sigmund Freud because his views on gender are not views that we would find acceptable uh, today, uh, we're, we're finding uh, uh, people banned, their, their films banned because of things they're accused of, of doing or things they're accused of, of, of saying. Uh, and, and with no due process and no opportunity to respond, it's particularly difficult when you cancel dead people. Uh, Dr. Seuss cannot defend himself. Shlomo Kralbach, one of the great Jewish singers and voices, of modern times, whose songs resonate in synagogues all over the world, has been canceled and banned for accusations that were made years after he died and had no opportunity uh, to defend himself. Do we not understand matters of, of degree? Uh, Karl Bach was accused of hugging people too firmly or too suggestively. We're seeing that happen now with Governor Cuomo. Uh, Governor Cuomo is accused now by three women of inappropriate comments, um, not inappropriate touching, although in one case he allegedly put his hand on, on a cheek, but mostly inappropriate comments. What is that, a three on a scale of 10, a two? It's certainly not a nine or a 10. And then you have people who are accused of tens who are falsely accused, Joe Biden. I don't believe it for one second. He was accused by a woman of doing something which was a 10, an absolute 10 uh, on a scale of 10. And yet it turned out after an investigation by The New York Times and Politico and others that this was a woman who probably should not be believed, who didn't have particular uh, credibility. So that was dismissed in the Cuomo case. The women seemed to be credible, but the scale of offense seems to warrant people making decisions about whether they should vote for him. It's not a crime, probably not a tort. What he's accused of doing, what he's accused of doing is utterly inappropriate. A governor does not make suggestive comments to an employee if he made them. He seems to have admitted that he made some of them in jest, and uh, he is known to be a teaser and a kind of wise guy and somebody who makes light of things, and he's acknowledged that. He denies the kissing and We'll wait and see what investigation reveals. There should be an investigation. When I was falsely accused by a woman I didn't ever meet, the first thing I did is I called for Harvard to investigate me. Then I called for the U.S. attorney to investigate me. Then I wrote an op-ed piece demanding the FBI investigate me. I want to be investigated because I want to be, obviously, completely vindicated. I never met the person. Uh, that's very different. There are many different kinds of accusations those that are totally, categorically, absolutely false, like in my case, and others that are matters of degree. Yeah, well, you know, uh, 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 the, the Senator Franken, yeah, he put his hand up like that. Uh, it was suggestive, but what he did didn't really warrant him having to leave the Senate. So 
there are those different kinds of issues. The same is true with literary uh, characters. When one goes through the list of great literary figures, there aren't too many of them that come out completely unscathed. Uh, there are no heroes with no clay feet. Mahatma Gandhi was a horrible racist. When he lived in South Africa, he used the N-word, the, the South African equivalent of the N-word, to describe black people who he thought were racially inferior. He described himself as an Aryan and wanted to be treated racially superior, superiorly, bad word, in South uh, Africa. Uh, he refused Gandhi to come to the help of, of the Jews of the Holocaust. Um, uh, you know, he was a very deeply, deeply, deeply flawed uh, man. Uh, my kids tease me all the time whenever we watch television or go to a movie. Anybody who's portrayed positively, I have something negative to say about them. It's not because I'm a negative person. It's because I think it's very important to understand that there are no perfect people in the world. No perfect heroes, no perfect literary uh, characters. And Nelson Mandela comes as close as anybody could come. But in the beginning of his life, he did justify uh, terrorism and the killing of innocent people. Uh, he remained married to a woman who uh, was a major promoter of, uh, of, of terrorism. Um, the entire struggle for human rights and equality in South Africa included people who engaged in conduct that today we would not find acceptable. Um, there's almost no perfect story. George Washington comes very close. He did. His wife, I think, owned slaves. Uh, he did not personally. And he treated the British incredibly well. Um, no war crimes. The American Revolution was conducted according to George Washington's very, very high standards, which he learned from the British, by the way, serving in their army originally. Uh, Abraham Lincoln is being uh, canceled now in some places because of things he said about African-American people and about the impossibility of integrating them into American life and the benefits of perhaps having them go back to uh, Africa. Again, this is the man who drafted the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, got them passed. That was the peace treaty. He died as a hero as a result of helping to end slavery. And yet he, too, is being canceled. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, less than perfect when it came to uh, trying to rescue Jews from uh, the Holocaust. Eleanor Roosevelt, her early letters reflect the deep bigotry. Uh, people change, people grow. Um, people write great things even without changing. So the challenge today is to Amazon uh, it's to major book publishers. There's a, 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 a petition going around now from, from book publishers, editors, writers, writers, people who write for a living, literary people, urging publishers not to publish books by anybody who worked for the Trump administration. You know, these folks forget that the First Amendment contains two distinct but overlapping rights. It's very important to bear that in mind as we deal with all of this cancel culture and censorship. One is the right of the speaker. The speaker has the right to express his views. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. It doesn't say the speaker's freedom of speech. It says the freedom of speech. And the freedom of speech entails not only the right of the speaker, but the right of the listener. 
the right of the viewer, your right, my right to read Dr. Seuss, to read Dostoevsky, to read the books written by people who worked in the Trump administration. We have that right, too. And the government has no power to eliminate that right from us. Let me give you an example that illustrates the distinction between the right of the speaker and the right of the listener. This is a real case that I worked on. You have a speaker from a foreign country. Uh, say uh, he's a Palestinian uh, from Hamas who believes in terrorism. And there was such a speaker recently, a woman who um, uh, had been involved in hijacking airplanes. And she's invited by students at Berkeley, University of San Francisco, Harvard, you name it. These have all happened um, to speak via Zoom. These, these are going to come up more frequently, obviously, with Corona and, and, and Zoom. So here you have a situation. You have a speaker who's been banned from coming into the United States for good and legitimate reasons. They're terrorists. We don't want them in our country. We don't want them physically present in our country. But they want to. They've been invited by a group of students to make a speech to be listened to by American citizens at American universities. And there's an effort to stop that, to ban them. So there are two issues. The speaker's right. The speaker has no rights. She, he, not an American citizen, not an American person, not covered by the First Amendment. So they have no right to speak. But the audience has a right to hear them. And so I defend the right of the audience to hear, and I oppose efforts to try to ban the speaker. Not because the speaker has any right, she and he doesn't have any right, but the listener, the viewer, the reader has the right. I take the same position with regard to any of these other canceled and banned people. I have the right to read them. I have the right to listen to their music. I have the right to listen and read their literature and, and, and watch a speech that they gave. And the publishers and the censors don't seem to recognize that second right. The right of the recipient, the viewer, the reader, the listener. We have rights. And there are going to be lawsuits now because I'm going to certainly encourage people to bring them. Rights of people who are being denied the opportunity to be the recipient of free speech. And that's what free speech is all about. It's about us, the viewer, us, the citizens. We're entitled to change the channel. We're not going to be victims of cable providers or satellites who say, we don't like Fox we don't like Newsmax. Therefore, you, the viewer, will have no right to see them on our cable or satellite networks. No, if they try to do that, we, the viewers, will sue. We, the listeners, will sue because we have our own independent rights. And so this is going to be the great free speech issue of the 21st century. And certainly, as we are in the third decade uh, of the 21st uh, century, uh, we're going to see this decade with great, great attacks by many, many private, some public, some governmental, some mixed, like the letters from the congressman 
uh, to the satellite and cable providers. That's a mixed issue. It's the government, two members of Congress, trying to coerce private or at least semi-private companies, cable operators, satellite operators, from carrying channels, TV channels they don't approve of. But what about us? What about the viewers? What about the listeners? Let's assume I was canceled tomorrow for something I didn't do. You, people watching my podcast, would be deprived of your right to hear my views, your right to flip the channel. If you don't like what I'm saying, you know, go to somebody else. If you don't like what I'm saying, turn it off. You're the ultimate censor, as Sapphire, Bill Sapphire, put it so, so eloquently. He said, in America, every citizen, every person has the right to complain about what's on TV except Uncle Sam. Except Uncle Sam. And Uncle Sam includes all aspects of the government, including pressure from the government. Because Uncle Sam can't tell us, the citizens, what we should be viewing and what we should be listening to. Look, there are costs to this. If you don't have any kind of censorship, then people will buy Mein Kampf. Some will read it. Some will believe it. Some may even act on it. That's the price of freedom. That's the price of liberty. People say, look what happened in Germany. It's not what happened in Germany. In Germany, you could only read Mein Kampf. You couldn't read the responses to it. There was no marketplace of ideas. In China, in the Soviet Union, in Cuba, you could only read what the government told you you could read. Whenever the government tells you you can't read things, the next step is to tell you what you must read. The only distinction is between government, big government, big tech, big industry, controlling what we can and can't read and leaving us alone. Brandeis talked about the right to be left alone, the right to get government off our back, the right to make our own decisions, the right to change the channel. That is one of the most fundamental rights. Let's make a new bumper sticker. The right to change the channel. That is the most fundamental right you can have. The right to throw Dr. Seuss's book in the garbage pail if you don't like it. And the right to read it to your children if you do like it. That's not something a decision Amazon should be making or school board should be making. That's a decision parents should be making. Use it as an educational opportunity. Read Dr. Seuss. Laugh at some of his rhymes and then say, by the way, Dr. Seuss, who you admire so much and whose writings you like, you know, he too had some views that today we find unacceptable and are wrong. He shouldn't be describing people in this manner. Those are stereotypes. Use it as an educational moment. Have faith, have trust in the American people. We can make these decisions better than government. We can make these decisions better than Amazon. We can make these decisions better than Twitter. We can make these decisions better than Facebook. Trust us. We can make decisions about what to read, what not to read, what to listen to, what to accept, what not to accept. That's the American way. Now I want to hear what you have to say about all this because it's very controversial. There's no free lunch if you allow Dr. Seuss and you allow the others, you're also going to allow some pretty horrible stuff to be sold and to be viewed and to be read. What do you want? Do you want the government to tell you what you can read 
or do you want to make that decision for yourself? Call into The Dirt Show and let me have your views. Now for the wits part of The Dirt Show, our first call. Hello, this is Dr. Romano from Miami Beach, Florida. It's hard to believe that you're comparing the Globes, the Golden Globes, to Trump's speech. Trump's doing a speech for CPAC, a limited view. The Golden Globes is a mass audience. It's all motion picture, television, spills into the media. And it seems like you're surprised. Perhaps you can watch more TV because this has been going on for the last four or five years constantly on every channel except a couple. Um, And I think uh, Trump's speech was uh, necessary to defend what they've been doing to him with the last impeachment. As vicious as the Democrats were, he just counted it with the same level of viciousness. I don't think one side giving up is going to make the other side uh, unite. Anyway, I'd like to hear your comments. Thank you. Look, I agree with you that I think Trump uh, tried to battle Democratic viciousness with his own. I just don't think that's the way to go. In America, I think somebody has to take the lead and say enough's enough. Um, I was hoping that Joe Biden would do that, and he did in the beginning, uh, his acceptance speech. Um, was filled with comments uh, about uh, bringing us together and, and, and no vindictiveness. But then, of course, he supported the impeachment, which was, I think, a mistake. I think he was driven to do it by um, his base, but he shouldn't have. Uh, he shouldn't have given in. Um, the impeachment was wrong. Uh, President Trump's speech didn't deal much with the impeachment. It dealt with um, many other issues, including relitigating the election itself. Uh, as far as uh, how many people watch each, um, uh, Trump's speech was widely watched. It was not covered by CNN or some of the other networks. It was covered by Fox News and was widely reported, and the, so was the Golden Gloves. So I'm not making a comparison between the two. The point I was making is that watching them both shows how divided we are, and your call shows how uh, divided we are. I would just love to see efforts made to try to at least bring us together on issues like fighting the COVID, uh, issues like foreign policy and how to deal with the threats of Iran. Those are things that all Americans agree with, how to deal with the competition from uh, China. We disagree with a lot of things, and there's no reason for either side to uh, in any way give up on its principled statements on the environment, on immigration, on health care, on taxation. Those are all issues that have traditionally divided Democrats and and Republicans and the left and the right. What's different is the tone and the angry tone and the unwillingness to listen to the other side and the assumption that one side is always right about everything and the other side is always wrong about everything. That's just not the way the world works and that's just not the way we will bring us together and strengthen us as a country. Hi, Professor Dershowitz. I want to actually defend the um, big tech uh, uh, banning people who believe the election lied. Because if you heard the impeachment argument, they said, oh, the First Amendment? 
well, people have had many beliefs before, and people have had, you know, you can believe whatever you want, but no belief that anyone has ever had has driven people to go into the Capitol to try to kill our elected officials. This has never happened before. So obviously, if people believe that the Democrats committed treason, it's obviously going to send them into a frenzy. They're going to they tried to do it on January 6th. They're going to try to do it on March 4th to try to overturn the election. It's it's dangerous, and we can't have people believing this, and it's shameful. So this is why they need to not ha- be able to profess their disbelief, because it leads to deadly insurrections. You can't stop people from believing what they believe, and you're not correct about this being the only time. Uh, you remember something called the American Revolution? Uh, reading books like uh, Thomas Paine's Common Sense and others led Americans to take up arms and commit treason. Uh, yes, the American Revolution was an act of treason. It was uh, Benjamin Franklin who said, we must all hang together or surely we will all hang separately. Had the uh, American revolutionaries, colonialists, lost the Revolutionary War, Washington would have been hanged. Um, um, Hamilton would have been hanged, not Jefferson, because he didn't participate really in the American Revolution, but he would have been hanged for writing the Declaration of Independence, um, the Civil War, the abolitionists, uh, the writings of the abolitionists uh, resulted in the deaths of so many hundreds of thousands of Americans. Writings and beliefs lead to to violence. Uh, we have a concept called fighting words, fighting faiths. Uh, Christianity led to the Crusades. Um, uh, Islam has led to um, many acts of, um, of violence in the name of faith. You wouldn't ban the Quran. You wouldn't ban the, uh, the New Testament. Um, maybe you want people to read the New Testament a little bit more literally. Anybody who read the New Testament would not have engaged in the Crusades, obviously. Um, but, um, but, but you can't ban the writing and the speaking and the beliefs. We'll never be able to ban the beliefs. The beliefs will just go and be driven underground. Um, you can hold people responsible for acts that led to violence. Uh, would you ban Karl Marx's um, uh, Das Kapital or uh, the Communist Manifesto that led to many, many, many deaths. Um, where do you stop once you start banning ideas that might lead to violence? <clears throat> yes, Mr. Dershowitz. Um, I was wondering your thoughts on Cartoon Network's release of they call anti-racism ad teaching children to see color. In my mind, that is teaching racism to children. That goes against Martin Luther King and the way I feel about racism and the way I feel about people in general. Just wondering your thoughts. This is an issue that goes back to the beginning of time. I was just reading a biography of a, of a great uh, Zionist named Zev Jabotinsky, uh, who was one of the founders of uh, Israel. He didn't live to see its founding. And uh, he was fighting against what we'll call the assimilationists. Uh, he wanted to see a separate Jewish state, which focused on Jewish identity. And uh, and others said, no, 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 Jews are just like anybody else. They should assimilate into the general country and not be different. They're not a nation. They're just a slightly different religion. Uh, um, 
Martin Luther King had a view of how to eliminate racism. Malcolm X had a different view. Um, you're going to see this running through all of history. People who want to emphasize racial or religious or nationalistic differences and people who want to reduce or eliminate them. We're never going to res- resolve that. The one thing that's clear is that no university, no government should tell you how you want to resolve the issue of racism. You have a perfect right to follow Martin Luther King, and you have a perfect right to reject Martin Luther King, and schools shouldn't have programs which teach you how important race is. No, you have a right to say race is, as my, my, my great colleague Stephen Jay Gould, one of the greatest scientists of the 20th century who died too young, put it, you know, race is just one of so many different distinguishing factors among human beings and it's as much a social contingency as it is a biological one people have the right to disagree about how to deal with matters of race matters of religion matters of ethnicity and we're never going to resolve that issue there's no right answer i can tell you what the wrong answer is the wrong answer is to teach people that there's a right answer the wrong answer is to make people comply with their view of how to deal with racism. No, you must be race conscious. Yeah, you must accept identity politics. You must judge people based on their race. You must talk about white privilege. No, that's not what all people accept. It's certainly not what I accept. And uh, I think I'm as sensitive about racial issues. I've been focusing and teaching and being involved. I went down south. I trained to be a civil rights worker. Um, I believe very strongly in equality, but I believe in Martin Luther King's concept of equality, not in Malcolm X's. But I have friends, close friends, who have a different view. Let the debate go forward, but let not the government and major universities take positions on what is the wrong approach to how to deal with issues of race. Hello, Professor Dershowitz. I was just wondering about your opinion. Do you approve federally mandated minimum wage law? Now, the minimum wage law should depend upon the uh, the cost of living in the area in which you are. The cost of living in various areas in the United States varies tremendously. It might make a little bit more sense to have a state minimum wage. But even there, certain parts of the, of the state are very low uh, cost of living and certain parts are high cost of living. So it doesn't make sense to me to have a, a minimum wage even by the state. I think there should be no minimum wage because you, no one could come up with a number that would make sense over the whole country. Okay, thanks, Professor Dershowitz. What do you think? <laughs> Bye. Very hard question. Um, Minimum wage laws have a real empirical issue. Um, I want to do what's best for the working people. And I I need to be told, I need to learn, I need to see the data as to whether minimum wage laws help or hurt poor people. Does it result in more unemployment because some companies can't afford to pay the minimum wage. I think your idea, too, about having a minimum wage that might uh, reflect differences around the country is a good idea. What is a minimum wage in New York City uh, certainly is different from a minimum wage in a part of the country where the cost of living is much, much lower. Um, There are so many issues. There's issues of federalism. Should this be a federal issue? Should it be a state issue? I mean, how about this as a proposal? I'll just throw it out. And, and that is a federal 
mandatory minimum wage, but the number will depend on the location and the cost of living. So that you have a minimum wage, say, this is just a hypothetical series of numbers because I'm not an economist, that would range from 10 to $25 an hour. And it would be measured by a percentage figured out by economists of the cost of living. And so whatever the percentage is might result in a minimum wage of $13 in Arkansas and $19 in Connecticut. Uh, it would be the same percentage minimum wage. It would, the goal would be to assure that everybody could at least support a family if they worked a 40-hour week. But the number might vary. These are such complicated issues. I agree with you that there's a problem with a national minimum wage. From my point of view as a liberal, the problem is it's likely to be too low. Um, if it is one standard wage, it, uh, $15 an hour is not enough in New York and maybe is enough in some parts of the country. So as a liberal, I'm concerned about the minimum wage becoming a maximum minimum wage in some areas. Um, but I think a more nuanced, sophisticated approach um, might satisfy everything. Look, on balance, whenever the issue is, is this something that will help the working person? I'm going to be in favor of it, but I'm having an open mind as to whether or not the way in which we approach the current minimum wage, $15 across the country, will or won't hurt the average working person who works for a minimum wage. That, for me, is an empirical issue, and I have an open mind about it, but I want to see workers fairly compensated for their work, and I want to make sure that every American family uh, that have people who can work 40-hour a week um, can afford the basic necessities of life. Hi, Mr. Dershowitz. My name is Tammy Ellingworth, and I'm calling from Las Vegas, Nevada. I love your show. I just had a question about why the Senate and the House do not vote anonymously. It seems to be that if they were allowed to vote anonymously, that they might be able to escape the partisan attacks from the mobs that we're seeing today. Love to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much for the show. It's a great question, and it goes beyond even the Senate and the House. Do we have a right to have anonymous pamphlets handed out? Is anonymity a basic constitutional right? Um, I'm in favor of anonymous pamphlets. Uh, obviously, even the Federalist Papers, the greatest collection of political advocacy in the history, if not of the world, certainly of the United States, were written anonymously, not quite anonymously. They were signed Politico and other kinds of names, uh, Politicus, or I don't remember the exact names, but I think people knew it was Hamilton and Madison and, and, uh, and others. Uh, but uh, Congress and the Senate, you know, we vote for them. Don't we have a right to know how they're going to vote? Uh, it's a complex issue because if they were allowed to vote anonymously, obviously more people would cross party lines and vote according to their principles. On the other hand, they couldn't be held accountable. On the third hand, we'd be spending all of our time figuring out who actually voted which way. Um, and there'd probably be leaks and there'd be uh, speculation and guesses. On balance, I think I would be opposed to anonymous voting. I think accountability of elected political officials is more important than what the benefits would be. And there would be benefits of voting anonymously. Very, very hard question. 
Professor Dershowitz. Uh, I thoroughly enjoy your show. You're a much-needed voice of reason and clarity in these partisan and propagandistic times. Um, in thinking about how untrustworthy our news media has become, I was wondering if a way to reverse that might be the creation of an accreditation process for the press. What I'm envisioning is a self-governing body, a media board uh, made up of members of the press to oversee the industry, set guidelines for conduct and reporting, and to receive accreditation, maybe members of the press could take an oath, not unlike a physician's Hippocratic oath, uh, but instead of do no harm, the press could take an oath to tell no lies. Assuming there was no government involvement and anyone could still be an unaccredited reporter if they wanted to, uh, could something like this work without running afoul of the First Amendment? And if so, do you think it's a good idea? Thanks. It's certainly a great idea to consider. Uh, journalism is one of the few professions that are not governed by any ethical code, and I think it's the most unethical profession that I have encountered in my long professional life. Um, you know, lawyers uh, are bound by a code of professional responsibility enforceable by bar associations. And lawyers have rights also under the Seventh and Sixth and Due Process Clause and various constitutional amendments. We have constitutional rights and constitutional obligations. And yet there are um, bar association rules. They can be abused. They're being abused now. Efforts to try to discipline and disbar lawyers who advocated for President Trump. Uh, during the McCarthy period, the same thing happened on the other side when the shoe was on the other foot. So there are real problems of enforcing ethics uh, among doctors and lawyers who have mandatory ethics rules that they have to comply with. For journalism, something has to be done to improve the ethics of journalism. Uh, journalistic ethics are unbelievably uh, non-existent. I'll give you an example from my own life. Uh, a, a woman who was up for the Pulitzer Prize uh, from the Miami uh, Herald uh, wrote a series about the um, Epstein case, and uh, she promised me that if I provided her with information that attacked the credibility of her main witness, she would include that information. Uh, her name is Julie Brown. And, and uh, she made promises and, and refused to do it. The same thing happened with um, Netflix, where I gave them material that they promised, promised expressly to include and then failed to include it because they wanted to present only one side of the issue. So journalistic ethics are at an all-time low um, I think it was Thomas Jefferson who once said, people who uh, don't read any newspapers are better informed than people who read some of them. I think the same is true today um, with um, some television stations and some news media. Whether we could have um, an ethical group which is self-governing and which is enforcing, I think raises a good question. I, I'd certainly be in favor of thinking about it, certainly be in favor of maybe experimenting with it, um, but uh, it would have to carefully guard First Amendment rights. I like your idea of having people who can operate outside of the certification process and still be able to be journalists, as now would newspapers hire somebody who was outside of the um, accepted uh, uh, ethical uh, uh, procedure? I don't know. Um, it's a very interesting idea. It's certainly something I would very, very seriously consider. It's the kind of question I love because you really make me think. I have to think on my feet now. 82 and a half years old, I still have to think on my feet to be able to respond to your brilliant questions. And thank you. Keep them coming.
Hi, Professor Dershowitz. This is Russ from Massachusetts. I do have one question regarding the impeachment of President Trump and the senators that voted that it was constitutional. I am just, my question is, how can that be prevented from happening again? Because it seems it was never addressed. And even though some senators voted against impeachment, um, they, on the grounds that it was unconstitutional, it still seems like they could do it to the future, to, in the future, to anyone that they so well please. So if you could comment to that, I would appreciate it. Enjoy listening to your show. Thanks. Great question. Of course, we have two major precedents. And in both cases, the uh, first case involved the Secretary of War and the Grant administration, Belknap, and the second case involved the second impeachment of President, uh, former President Trump. In both cases, former public officials um, or were tried. Uh, in one case, in Belknap, he was impeached after the day after he left office. In the second case, uh, Trump, he was impeached while in office, but tried after he left office. And the precedents cut both ways. In both cases, you had a majority of the Senate saying it was constitutional, it was proper to try a former government official. And in both cases, there were acquittals because you couldn't get the two-thirds vote. So which way does the precedent cut? Um, the precedent suggests you can try them, but you can't convict them because you're never going to get enough votes that it is constitutional. And remember, the vast majority of votes, both in the Belknap and in the Trump cases, to acquit, were not necessarily based on the merits of the case. Uh, they were based on the fact that enough senators did not believe that the Senate had jurisdiction over a former public official. So it's a mixed precedent. Again, I just have to congratulate all the callers. These are such great calls. These are calls that are worthy of any major law school, any major government, any major journalist department. Uh, this is university-level questions. I hope I'm up to giving university-level answers. Uh, but keep the questions coming. They're great. They really stimulate my mind. I hope they stimulate the minds of the listeners and viewers. Tell your friends about The Dirt Show. Subscribe to The Dirt Show. Let's keep it growing. Let's keep more questions coming on The Dirt Show. An important part of The Dirt Show is your voice, your questions, your comments. Please call 24-7. The number is 216-710-0050. Keep your comments short and to the point. Again, the number for you to call. 24-7 is 216-710-0050. Hard questions, criticisms, everything's fine. Just keep your questions short, and I'll answer them all on The Dirt Show.